So, my name is David Lyons. I'm one of the members of staff here at Samongos, and it is just great to, to be here in Livingston this morning. Uh, and we're going to move now into our time looking at the Word. So, uh, our series at the moment is generosity, uh, and you guys have demonstrated your generosity uh, brilliantly this morning uh, as, we've, as we've watched that, that AGM. But it's our part, of our, our part of our series is looking at how generosity is a lifestyle approach. Um, it's not just uh, about our money and our stuff, but it's about our time, it's about our talents, it's about our, our possessions, our prayer life, uh, and it's how we display God's generosity to us. Uh, to others. It's about our entire lives. And I'm in the privileged position uh, in my role where I get to hear about the amazing generosity of people within our own church family. Uh, I heard about a person whose car had broken down and another member of the congregation uh, provided them with the use of a car um, until theirs one was, was fixed. I hear about prayer cells who regularly and faithfully for years now have been praying for uh, our church family for various different situations. I know this week as we've been praying for one of our, our members of our Belerno congregation, Ferry, who's been ill in hospital, lots of people have given up their time to, to pray for her. I heard of someone who gave a stranger in a supermarket 50 pounds uh, because they felt that prompted by uh, God to do so. Someone who gave someone a family the use of their home so they could have a holiday. Someone who swapped a perfectly good window seat on a long haul flight uh, with someone who was sat on what I think is probably the worst seat on an airplane that you could imagine. That's one by the emergency exit uh, where you've got no TV screen or anything just because they wanted to bless this other person that they'd never met before. We hear about our generosity as a congregation as we nearly hit our £20,000 target for our church gift collection. It's really phenomenal. St. Mungo's is an incredibly generous family. And it's as we hear testimony like this, uh, and as we take time to study God's generosity, it helps to bring transformation in our own lives as we're both encouraged and also challenged. Last week, Ollie showed us how God has been so generous to us, why he's been generous to us, and what we can do in response to that as he shared the cycle which will come up on the screen of how thanksgiving leads to praise and faith arises and then we trust God more. And so our fear falls and then generosity flows. And that all happens in a repeating cycle. It's so good in theory, but the reality of living this out, uh, for me anyway, can feel so hard. It's far easier, isn't it, to complain than to be thankful. It's easier to, to worry about our finance than be uh, confident in God's generosity. It's easier to spend money on ourselves. It's easier to do things that we want to do with our time or to pray for the things that are going on in our lives rather than seeking to pray for those uh, situations in other people's. We, we want to be generous, but so often our intention is to be generous, but we somehow fail into holding on to what we have or we try to solve things in our own strength, in our own wisdom. I can so often relate to what Paul says in Romans 7. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep doing. So why is this? Well, to find out, we need to head back 
to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis. So in the ancient world, the kings and the rulers, they'd use their authority that they'd been given uh, to order people around, to have things made, to decree laws, and, and essentially define how society operated. They got to define what is good and what is evil, what's right, what's wrong. Uh, and they'd make statues of themselves, images of themselves to be worshipped. And the Hebrew word for that, it's selim. It means idol or image. The Israelites, however, didn't see their kings, so David, Saul, etc., as gods. They were kings. They were rulers. The Israelites saw God as God. And they were not permitted to make images of him to worship. To not make an image of God was really unusual in that culture and that time. And one of the main reasons that the Israelites did not make an image of God was that God had already made an image of himself. In Genesis, we read how at the formation of the world, God, the one with authority, God, the creator, and importantly what we're thinking about today, God, the one who defined good and evil, and at the end of each day, we read how God looked at the world he'd made, looked at what he created, and declared it was good. And as the pinnacle of his creation, he makes humanity. And he calls them the image of God. And giving all humans the authority to rule. So let's read Genesis 1, verses 28 to 31. It says this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They'll be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky, the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he'd made, and it was very good. God created humanity in his image. And then he did something completely radical. Because God gave humanity, made in his image, the authority to subdue the earth and to rule over it. Meaning the task which in the ancient times was the responsibility of just privileged kings and rulers was now the responsibility of every human. The picture given to us in Genesis of how humanity accomplishes this is gardening. Now, I come from a long line of amazing gardeners on both sides of my families. Uh, my grandma on my mum's side probably stands out uh, as being the best of the bunch. And she has a, a particular speciality uh, for growing tomatoes and clematis. My grandma can grow more tomatoes on a single plant than I've ever managed on about five or six. And I've never seen a clematis so beautiful as stunning as the ones that my grandma grows. And I really wanted to be able to show you a photo of this uh, this morning. So I scoured all my, my uh, photo history. I asked my mum to do the same. Uh, she got out all the old external hard drives that she'd save photos on. But sadly, uh, I'm not able to, to find one. So it is an image which will just uh, live permanently uh, in my mind, never ceasing to bring a smile, but sadly, not one that I'm able to share with you this morning. But these beautiful creations don't happen by accident or by luck. It comes from my grandma taking time by, to cultivate the best conditions for those plants to thrive, by tending 
dutifully to the plants as they develop, to care for them, to nurture them to, with delicate and deliberate tenderness so they bear abundant fruit and flowers. This image of us being gardeners is God's plan of how humanity is to rule the earth, to tend, to, to nurture, to cultivate, to care, to make something new and something more out of it. The image of gardening extends to growing families, neighborhoods, communities, society, and more. Tim Mackey from The Bible Project says that gardening is humanity's divine and sacred task. We know from the world around us today that humanity has made some incredible, some amazing things which help people and the world and society to flourish and to thrive. We also know that humanity has created things which bring about destruction and pain and suffering. So what went wrong? It's one of the most famous stories in the Bible, but we'll recap it because it gives us the foundation as to why things are as they are. So after God created humanity, he declared it was very good. He gives humans a choice, a choice about whether they will rule in a way which benefits others and using God's definition of good and evil, or if they're going to decide for themselves what is good and evil, and use the authority they've been given to prosper themselves. Humanity chooses to define good and evil for themselves, and, and this then sets a pattern for what we, we have seen and what we experience uh, through the centuries and in our world around us and in our own lives. It means there are times when we can create and do amazing, incredible, wonderful things which benefit others and the world. And equally, there are times when, despite often our good intentions, we act in a way which is self-seeking and brings evil destruction or pain into the world. And the word that the Bible uses to talk about this is sin, and it affects everyone. Since the very beginning, humanity has decided that it will use the authority given to it by God to decide good and evil for itself. And it may start with good intention, but when the rubber hits the road, almost always leads to placing self-seeking intentions over the benefit, the care, and the love of others. And Paul writes about this in Romans 1, verses 18 to 25. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his external power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for their images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Since the creation of the world, the generosity of God has been on display and has ultimately been revealed in the person of Jesus. And yet, rather than thank and praise God, humanity exchanges God for images, for idols that we've made. If we think back to the ancient kings and rulers of the ancient world, they made images and idols of themselves to be worshipped. 
Today's idols might have changed their appearance. They're no longer sculptures of wood or precious metals, but perhaps leaders of nations or tech inventors or sports teams or sports stars or, or political ideologies or scientific theories or, or artists. The list is long. Tim Keller says that an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. And then I'll feel significant and secure. Modern culture, particularly in the West, will often laugh at ancient idol practices. But we're still in the business of exchanging the glory of the immortal God for man-made idols. They just look a little different. When humanity creates its own idols, everyone gets to decide what is good and what is evil for themselves based on their thoughts, their feelings, and emotions. And when this is the case, it's very easy to deceive ourselves, particularly when our own interests are involved. A wise and very eloquent friend of mine wrote recently, if we as humans have taken it upon ourselves to decide what is right and wrong, then which of us gets the final say on what is and isn't over the line? In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul outlines the problem facing humanity in a bit more detail and then goes on to give us the good news about what God has done about it. And Richard Koken, when he's writing about this passage, sums up what we're about to read like this. He says, we've been brought from death by nature to life by grace. So turn with me to Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. We say, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that we've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourself, but it's a gift from God. Not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, Paul lays it out bluntly. He says we're spiritually dead. Not only that, but we're held captive in death by the way of the world, the, the external cultural environment that we live in, by the influence of Satan, the whispering deceiver and by the wickedness of our nature, the internal compulsive desire for self. The suggestion being that even if we were somehow able to come alive spiritually, we wouldn't be free because we're still held prisoner by these things. We're completely and utterly helpless. But God, our salvation and the hope that we have because of it always was and always will be because of God. He wasn't obligated or obliged to save us, and yet he did it anyway. He's shown his extravagant grace and generosity to us. 
It says, because of his great love for us. God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace that you've been saved. God has been generous in his love to us. He's withhold nothing from us, not even his precious son. God's been generous in his mercy to us. He's withheld the punishment we deserve, enduring it himself through Jesus' death on the cross. God has been generous to us in extending grace when we deserved his wrath. And we've been saved so that God might pour out more of the incomparable riches of his grace and his kindness to us. This is the extravagant generosity of God. Not content with just saving us, but instead he wants to continue to pour out his grace and pour out more of his kindness upon us. None of us can boast in anything that we have or that we accomplish or that we achieve because without God, we'd still be dead and held captive. It's my assumption that most of us here this morning, we know this incredible truth, that we've been saved by grace through faith. We've experienced the the kindness and the generosity of God in our lives, and yet we still have perhaps moments when our lives don't reflect the generosity of God to the world. We still have these moments when we make decisions and take decisions which are are self-orientated, where we raise ourselves up above others. Why? Well, if we use the analogy that we're being held captive or imprisoned by culture, Satan, and our nature, then why we struggle is obvious. God's broken us out of jail, and the guards want us back behind bars. And so they've sent out the search and rescue team. And we've got a bounty on our head. As we think about our theme of generosity, one of these three stands out to me. Our sinful nature. The way in which we look to further ourselves rather than others. Many commentators, which I read when preparing this, refer to this as our greed. Jesus talks about mammon, which refers to our wealth, our money, possessions, essentially our our stuff, more than he did about anything else, more than he talked about love or sex or prayer. It was his second favorite topic to preach on and to teach on after the kingdom of God. So whilst it makes us uncomfortable to talk about it, if we want to live our lives in a way which honored Jesus' teaching, we've got to talk about how we use the things that we have, not to condemn ourselves, but to talk about it, to talk about why it's important and why at times it's also quite hard. Since the moment humanity chose that it was going to define good and evil for itself, the universal instinct is to take the good gifts we receive from God and reserve them for ourselves. This greed is a corruption of our good human desire. And it can be so much part of our lives that we might not recognize when it's the place that we're living from. I was really challenged by a book which I'm reading at the moment called Glittering Vices by Rebecca Condyke de Young. And when talking about this subject, she says this, only a lack of power restrains our desire to take more than our share. We can't see why we would need more than minor lifestyle adjustments, scaling back our egregious excesses to address this vice. Our greed has become both mundane and comfortable. You see, it's a matter of the heart. 
The theologian Dan Wu says, what you have is this beautiful relationship of love and faithfulness between God and us, and then us and each other, that just rebounds and grows and fills the world. And greed short-circuits this process. Instead of receiving and then reflecting and returning God's gifts, we receive them and try to terminate the process on ourselves. It's when we place stuff, people, possessions above God. It's a symptom of our self-reliant, self-serving, self-appreciating heart. What Martin Luther famously referred to as the inward curve of the heart. It takes the human desire for good things and then turns it back on ourselves, which is the exact opposite of what we were created to do, which is to love God and to love others. And one of Jesus' most famous teachings on this is found in Mark 10, his encounter with the rich young ruler who, who comes and he says, Jesus, how do I inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, you know all the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, yes, I've been living them since I was young. And Jesus said to the man, then go, sell all that you have, come follow me. And the man walks away feeling dejected. You see, Jesus reordered the man's priorities. He was living a good life. He's following the commandments. He's living a godly life. Many of his friends and his neighbors, the people around him, would almost certainly have seen this man and thought, wow, what a godly man. Look how he follows all the commandments. But Jesus sees at the heart level there's an issue. His motivation was skewed. Greed was so much part of his life that he hadn't realized. And so Jesus challenged him to reorder the man's deepest loves, to reorder his priorities. And he walked away and felt dejected. And when I read this, I often wonder if Jesus stood before me, if he saw my heart, would there need to be some reordering and some reprioritizing? And I think quite possibly. I know that there are certainly moments when I feel similar to Greek philosopher Aristotle. In fact, this is probably the only time I feel very similar to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. But he says this, he says, Now I discovered the great pearl. To buy it, I had to sell all that I had. I hesitated. I'm not stood here confessing that I always feel like this, but I'm being honest with you that there are certainly times when I hesitate to hand it all over to God. I try to fix things in my own strength and with my own resources. Times when I know that I need to give something away, something that I have, and I hesitate. In fact, just last week, I had a moment. I was praying about our, our family's contribution to our Christmas gift collection I said, surely I've misheard you, Lord. I'll sleep on it. Funnily enough, when I woke up, the amount was still the same. When asked to give up everything to follow Jesus, the man hesitated, and then he walked away and felt dejected and disappointed. Jesus, access to the kingdom of heaven, stands before us, the great pearl. Do we do the same? Or do we fall on our knees? Do we hold our hands out? Do we surrender ourselves 
once more to the one who gave up everything, the one who held nothing back in his generosity to us. You see, we're all going to have moments where we hesitate. It's how we decide to respond after that is the key. What God has done through Jesus is astonishing. In Jesus, God's gift has been so lavish, so generous, so unmerited, it can't be described as generous. Instead, it's grace. It's God's greatest gift. And when we accept it, we are transformed. We're brought back to life. We're reborn into a relationship with God. We're no longer the subject of His wrath, but instead welcomed as beloved sons and co-heirs of the kingdom of God. And we're set free. We're released from the wrenches of the world, the bindings of Beelzebub, the grip of greed, the clutches of control, and the fastenings of fear. We're liberated to live with an open hand, holding on lightly to what we have, offering everything to God to use for His kingdom. For it's all come from Him anyway. Jesus belonged in heaven, seated on the throne, encircled by angels worshipping and praising Him. And yet, for your sake and for mine, he ends up stripped naked, nailed to a cross, despised, ridiculed, and mocked. He did this out of his great love for us. And if we choose to accept this outrageous gift of grace, then it changes everything. There's this rebirth which happened. We're no longer dead, but alive in Christ. Our relationship with God is restored back to how it was in the beginning when through Jesus we have the authority to rule in partnership with God in his creation. To get back to our divine and sacred task of tending, nurturing, caring, cultivating, growing this world so that it reflects the glory of God. As we're filled with the Holy Spirit, he continues to need that truth of the gospel deep into our heart. And it leads to transformation of our hearts. They no longer turn in on themselves, but turn outwards towards others. And perhaps you've heard this good news many times before, but this morning you've been brought back to a place of thanksgiving and praise for what God has done. Or perhaps this morning you've heard this for the first time, this good news that God loves you so much that whilst you are far away from Him, maybe even whilst you are still anti-Him, he sent his son Jesus to die upon a cross and in doing so provided a way which you can be set free, receive eternal hope and be restored into relationship with God once more. You see, it doesn't matter where you're from, what you've done or who you are. God loves you and has already shown his extravagant kindness and grace towards you and it's a gift which can only be received. If that's you this morning, as an opportunity to pray and to ask Jesus to be Lord in your life. I'm going to put a prayer up on the screen. And if this morning you'd like to pray this with me, to start a journey, a process of getting to know God as your Lord, then you can pray this along with me. It should just come up on the screen. No, it's not going to come up on the screen. Okay, well, I shall pray, uh, and then we can... Um, you can repeat it after me in your hearts. So, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for the things which I've done wrong in my life. Please forgive me. I now turn from everything I know is wrong 
Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for me so that I could be set free. Thank you that you offer me forgiveness and the gift of your spirit. And now receive that gift. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit to be with me forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you've prayed that this morning for the first time, I want to ask you, we're moving into a time of worship in a moment, uh, a time of responding. Uh, then you can come forward, you can chat to me or to Isaac, uh, or catch us in the coffee time. We'd love to chat with you uh, about what some good next steps would be, what it means to live life with Jesus as Lord. You see, we're bound uh, in a spiritual debt in captivity, but God, moved by his compassion, rescued us. And our response to God's generosity and his grace to us is to live lives of thankfulness, of praise and open-handed generosity to others. Tony Payne puts it like this. The generous grace of God liberates us to be different people. People of lavish generosity. The generous grace of God liberates us to be different people, people of lavish generosity. Let's pray. And if, as I pray, the band could start to make their way up. God, your generosity, your mercy and kindness towards us is astonishing. It's so lavish, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around it. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to pay the cost of our sin. We thank you that you didn't hold anything back in saving us. That whilst we were still far away from you, with no hope or entitlement of rescue, you came. We thank you that you didn't give us what we deserved but instead generously gave us grace. We praise you for your kindness and your goodness to us. Would you send your Holy Spirit, come and show us once more the immeasurable riches of your grace and your kindness towards us, in order that we might be transformed to live lives of extravagant generosity to those around us. Would you allow our hearts to be moved towards others in the same way that yours is? Amen.